Part First of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Silver of the Mine Chapter 8, Section 1 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part 1 The Silver of the Mine Chapter 8, Section 1 Those of us whom business or curiosity took to Sulaco in these years before the first advent of the railway can remember the steadying effect of the San Tome mine upon the life of that remote province. The outward appearances had not changed then as they have changed since, as I am told, with cable cars running along the streets of the Constitution and carriage roads far into the country to Rinson and other villages, where the foreign merchants and the Ricos generally have their modern villas and a vast railway goods yard by the harbour, which has a quayside, a long range of warehouses and quite serious organised labour troubles of its own. Nobody had ever heard of labour troubles then. The cargadores of the port formed, indeed, an unruly brotherhood of all sorts of scum with a patron saint of their own. They went on strike regularly, every bullfight day, a form of trouble that even Nostromo, at the height of his prestige, could never cope with efficiently. But the morning after each fiesta, before the Indian market women had opened their mat parasols on the plaza, when the snows of Higarata gleamed pale over the town on a yet black sky, the appearance of a phantom-like horseman mounted on a silver-grey mare solved the problem of labour without fail. His steed paced the lanes of the slums and the weed-grown enclosures within the old ramparts, between the black lightless cluster of huts like cow bars, like dog kennels. The horseman hammered with the butt of a heavy revolver at the doors of low pulperias, of obscene lean-to sheds sloping against the tumble-down piece of a noble wall, at the wooden sides of dwellings so flimsy that the sound of snores and sleepy mutters within could be heard in the pauses of the thundering clatter of his blows. He called out men's names menacingly from the saddle, once, twice. The drowsy answers, grumpy, conciliating, savage, jocular or deprecating, came out into the silent darkness in which the horseman sat still and presently a dark figure would flit out, coughing in the still air. Sometimes a low-toned woman cried through the window-hole softly, He's coming directly, signor. And the horseman waited, silent, on a motionless horse. But if, perchance, he had to dismount, then, after a while, from the door of that hovel or of that pulperia, with a ferocious scuffle and stifled imprecations, a cargador would fly out head first and hands abroad to sprawl under the forelegs of the silver-grey mare, who only pricked forward her sharp little ears. She was used to that work. And the man, picking himself up, would walk away hastily from Nostromo's revolver, reeling a little along the street and snarling low curses. At sunrise, Captain Mitchell, coming out anxiously in his night attire onto the wooden balcony running the whole length of the OSN Company's lonely building by the shore, would see the lighters already underway, figures moving busily about the cargo cranes, perhaps hear the invaluable Nostromo, now dismounted and in the checked shirt and red sash of a Mediterranean sailor, bawling orders from the end of the jetty in a stentorian voice, a fellow in a thousand. 
the material apparatus of perfected civilization which obliterates the individuality of old towns under the stereotyped conveniences of modern life had not intruded as yet. But over the worn-out antiquity of Sulaco, so characteristic with its stuccoed houses and barred windows, with the great yellowy-white walls of abandoned convents behind the rows of sombre green cypresses, that fact, very modern in its spirit, the San Tome mine, had already thrown its subtle influence. It had altered, too, the outward character of the crowds on feast days on the plaza before the open portal of the cathedral by the number of white ponchos with a green stripe affected as holiday wear by the San Tome miners. They had also adopted white hats with green cord and braid, articles of good quality which could be obtained in the storehouse of the administration for very little money. A peaceable cholo wearing these colours, unusual in Costaguana, was somehow very seldom beaten to within an inch of his life on a charge of disrespect for the town police. Neither ran he much risk of being suddenly lassoed on the road by a recruiting party of lanceros, a method of voluntary enlistment looked upon as almost legal in the Republic. Old villagers were known to have volunteered for the army in that way, but, as Don Pepe would say with a hopeless shrug to Mrs Gould, What would you, poor people? Pobrecitos, pobrecitos! But the state must have its soldiers. Thus professionally spoke Don Pepe, the fighter, with pendant moustaches, a nut-brown lean face, and a clean run of a cast-iron jaw, suggesting the type of a cattle-herd horseman from the great Llanos of the south. If you will listen to an old officer of Paez, senores, was the exordium of all his speeches in the aristocratic club of Sulaco, where he was admitted on account of his past services to the extinct cause of federation. The club, dating from the days of the proclamation of Costaguana's independence, boasted many names of liberators amongst its first founders. Suppressed arbitrarily innumerable times by various governments, with memories of proscriptions and of at least one wholesale massacre of its members, sadly assembled for a banquet by the order of a zealous military commandante, their bodies were afterwards stripped naked and flung into the plaza out of the windows by the lowest scum of the populace, it was again flourishing at that period peacefully. It extended to strangers to the large hospitality of the cool big rooms of its historic quarters in the front part of a house, once the resident of a high official of the holy office. The two wings shut up, crumbled behind the nailed doors, and what may be described as a grove of young orange trees grown in the unpaved patio concealed the utter ruin of the back part facing the gate. You turned in from the street as if entering a secluded orchard, where you came upon the foot of a disjointed staircase, guarded by a moss-stained effigy of some saintly bishop, mitred and staffed, and bearing the indignity of a broken nose meekly, with his fine stone hands crossed on his breast. The chocolate-coloured faces of servants with mops of black hair peeped at you from above. The click of billiard-balls came to your ears, and descending the steps you would perhaps see in the first sala, very stiff upon a straight-backed chair in a good light, Don Pepe moving his long moustaches as he spelt his way at arm's length through an old Santa Marta newspaper.
his horse, a stony-hearted but persevering black brute with a hammerhead, you would have seen in the street dozing motionless under an immense saddle with its nose almost touching the curbstone of the sidewalk. Don Pepe, when down from the mountain, as the phrase often heard in Sulaco went, could also be seen in the drawing-room of the Casa Gould. He sat with modest assurance at some distance from the tea-table. With his knees close together and a kindly twinkle of drollery in his deep-set eyes, he would throw his small and ironic pleasantries into the current of conversation. There was in that man a sort of sane, humorous shrewdness, and a vein of genuine humanity so often found in simple old soldiers of proved courage who have seen much desperate service. Of course he knew nothing whatever of mining, but his employment was of a special kind. He was in charge of the whole population in the territory of the mine, which extended from the head of the gorge to where the cart track from the foot of the mountain enters the plain, crossing a stream over a little wooden bridge painted green. Green, the colour of hope, being also the colour of the mine. It was reported in Salaco that up there, at the mountain, Don Pepe walked about precipitous paths, girt with a great sword and in a shabby uniform with tarnished bullion epaulets of a senior major. Most miners, being Indians with big wild eyes, addressed him as Taita, father, as these barefooted people of Costaguana will address anybody who wears shoes. But it was Basilio, Mr Gould's own mozzo and the head servant of the casa, who, in all good faith and from a sense of propriety, announced him once in the solemn words, El Señor Gobernador has arrived. Don José Avellanos, then in the drawing-room, was delighted beyond measure at the aptness of the title with which he greeted the old major banteringly as soon as the latter's soldierly figure appeared in the doorway. Don Pepe only smiled in his long moustaches as much as to say, You might have found a worse name for an old soldier. And El Señor Gobernador he had remained, with his small jokes upon his function and upon his domain, where he affirmed with humorous exaggeration to Mrs Gould, No two stones could come together anywhere without the Gobernador hearing the click, Signora. And he would tap his ear with the tip of his forefinger knowingly. Even when the number of the miners alone rose to over six hundred, he seemed to know each of them individually, all the innumerable Jose's, Manuel's, Ignacio's, from the villages Primero, Segundo or Tercero, there were three mining villages, under his government. He could distinguish them not only by their flat, joyless faces, which to Mrs Gould look all alike, as if run into the same ancestral mould of suffering and patience, but apparently also by the infinitely graduated shades of reddish-brown, of blackish-brown, of coppery-brown backs, as the two shifts, stripped to linen drawers and leather skull-caps, mingled together with a confusion of naked limbs, of shouldered picks, swinging lamps, in a great shuffle of sandaled feet on the open plateau before the entrance of the main tunnel. It was a time of pause. The Indian boys leaned idly against the long line of little cradle-wagons standing empty. The screeners and oar-breakers squatted on their heels, smoking long cigars. The great wooden chute slanting over the edge of the tunnel plateau was silent, and only the ceaseless violent rush of water in the open flumes could be heard, 
murmuring fiercely, with the splash and rumble of revolving turbine wheels and the thudding march of the stamps pounding to powder the treasure rock on the plateau below. The heads of gangs distinguished by brass medals hanging on their bare breasts marshalled their squads, and at last the mountain would swallow one half of the silent crowd, while the other half would move off in long files down the zigzag paths leading to the bottom of the gorge. It was deep, and far below a thread of vegetation winding between the blazing rock faces resembled a slender green cord, in which three lumpy knots of banana patches, palm-leaf roots and shady trees marked the village one, village two, village three, housing the miners of the Gould Concession. Whole families had been moving from the first towards the spot of the Higarota range, whence the rumour of work and safety had spread over the pastoral campo, forcing its way also, even as the waters of a high flood, into the nooks and crannies of the distant blue walls of the Sierras. Father first, in a pointed straw hat, then the mother with the bigger children, generally also a diminutive donkey, all under burdens except the leader himself, or perhaps some grown girl, the pride of the family, stepping barefooted and straight as an arrow with braids of raven hair, a thick, haughty profile and no load to carry but the small guitar of the country and a pair of soft leather sandals tied together on her back. At the sight of such parties strung out on the cross-trails between the pastures or camped by the side of the royal road, travellers on horseback would remark to each other, more people going to the St. Tomé mine. We shall see others tomorrow. And spurring on in the dusk, they would discuss the great news of the province, the news of the San Tomé mine. A rich Englishman was going to work it, and perhaps not an Englishman, Kent Sabe, a foreigner with much money. Oh yes, it had begun. A party of men who had been to Sulaco with a herd of black bulls for the next corrida had reported that from the porch of the Posada in Ranson, only a short league from the town, the lights of the mountain were visible, twinkling above the trees. And there was a woman seen riding a horse sideways, not in the chair seat, but upon a sort of saddle, and a man's hat on her head. She walked about, too, on foot, up the mountain paths. A woman engineer, it seemed she was. What an absurdity! Impossible, senor. Si, si, una americana del norte. Ah, well, if your worship is informed, una americana, it need be something of that sort. And they would laugh a little with astonishment and scorn, keeping a wary eye on the shadows of the road, for one is liable to meet bad men when travelling late on the campo. And it was not only the men that Don Pepe knew so well, but he seemed able, with one attentive, thoughtful glance, to classify each woman, girl, or growing youth of his domain. It was only the small fry that puzzled him sometimes. He and the padre could be seen frequently side by side, meditative and gazing across the street of a village at a lot of sedate brown children, trying to sort them out, as it were, in low, consulting tones or else they would together put searching questions as to the parentage of some small, staid urchin met wandering, naked and grave, along the road with a cigar in his baby mouth, and perhaps his mother's rosary, purloined for purposes of ornamentation, hanging in a loop of beads low down on his rotund little stomach. 
the spiritual and temporal pastors of the mind flock were very good friends. With Dr. Monigham, the medical pastor, who had accepted the charge from Mrs. Gould and lived in the hospital building, they were on not-so-intimate terms. But no one could be on intimate terms with El Senor Doctor, who, with his twisted shoulders, drooping head, sardonic mouth and sidelong bitter glance, was mysterious and uncanny. The other two authorities worked in harmony. Father Roman, dried up, small, alert, wrinkled, with big round eyes, a sharp chin and a great snuff-taker, was an old campaigner too. He had shriven many simple souls on the battlefields of the Republic, kneeling by the dying on hillsides, in the long grass, in the gloom of the forests, to hear the last confession with the smell of gunpowder smoke in his nostrils, the rattle of muskets, the hum and spatter of bullets in his ears. And where was the harm if at the presbytery they had a game with a pack of greasy cards in the early evening, before Don Pepe went his last rounds to see that all the watchmen of the mine, a body organised by himself, were at their posts. For that last duty before he slept, Don Pepe did actually gird his old sword on the veranda of an unmistakable American white-frame house, which Father Roman called the Presbytery. Nearby, a long, low, dark building, steeple-roofed, like a vast barn with a wooden cross over the gable, was the miners' chapel. There Father Roman said Mass every day before a sombre altarpiece representing the resurrection, the grey slab of the tombstone balanced on one corner, a figure soaring upwards, long-limbed and livid, in an oval of pallid light, and a helmeted brown legionary smitten down right across the bituminous foreground. This picture, my children, muy linda e maravillosa, Father Roman would say to some of his flock, which you behold here through the munificence of the wife of her senor administrador, has been painted in Europe, a country of saints and miracles, and much greater than our Costaguana. And he would take a pinch of snuff with unction. But when once an inquisitive spirit desired to know in what direction this Europe was situated, whether up or down the coast, Father Roman, to conceal his perplexity, became very reserved and severe. No doubt it is extremely far away, but ignorant sinners like you of the San Tomé mine should think earnestly of everlasting punishment instead of inquiring into the magnitude of the earth with its countries and populations altogether beyond your understanding. With a good-night, Padre, and good-night, Don Pepe, the gobernador would go off, holding up his sabre against his side, his body bent forward with a long, plodding stride in the dark. The jocularity proper to an innocent card game for a few cigars or a bundle of yerba was replaced at once by the stern duty mood of an officer setting out to visit the outposts of an encamped army. One loud blast of the whistle that hung from his neck provoked instantly a great shrilling of responding whistles mingled with the barking of dogs that would calm down slowly at last, away up at the head of the gorge. And in the stillness two serenos, on guard by the bridge, would appear walking noiselessly towards him. On one side of the road, a long frame building, the store, would be closed and barricaded from end to end. Facing it, another white frame house, still longer, and with a veranda, the hospital, would have lights in the two windows of Dr. Monningham's quarters. 
Even the delicate foliage of a clump of pepper trees did not stir, so breathless would be the darkness warmed by the radiation of the overheated rocks. Don Pepe would stand still for a moment with the two motionless serenos before him, and abruptly high up on the sheer face of the mountain, dotted with single torches like drops of fire fallen from the two great blazing clusters of lights above, the ore shoots would begin to rattle. The great clattering, shuffling noise, gathering speed and weight, would be caught up by the walls of the gorge and sent upon the plain in a growl of thunder. The Pasadero in Rinson swore that on calm nights, by listening intently, he could catch the sound in his doorway as of a storm in the mountains. To Charles Gould's fancy, it seemed that the sound must reach the uttermost limits of the province. Riding at night towards the mine, it would meet him at the edge of a little wood just beyond Rinson. There was no mistaking the growling mutter of the mountain pouring its stream of treasure under the stamps, and it came to his heart with the peculiar force of a proclamation thundered forth over the land and the marvellousness of an accomplished fact fulfilling an audacious desire. He had heard this very sound in his imagination on that far-off evening when his wife and himself, after a tortuous ride through a strip of forest, had reined in their horses near the stream and had gazed for the first time upon the jungle-grown solitude of the gorge. The head of a palm rose here and there. In a high ravine round the corner of the San Tome mountain, which is square like a blockhouse, the thread of a slender waterfall flashed bright and glassy through the dark green of the heavy fronds of tree ferns. Don Pepe, in attendance, rode up and, stretching his arm up the gorge, had declared with mock solemnity, Behold the very paradise of snakes, Signora. And then they had wheeled their horses and ridden back to sleep that night at Rinson. The alcalde, an old skinny moreno, a sergeant of Gutsman Bento's time, had cleared respectfully out of his house with his three pretty daughters to make room for the foreign senora and their worships, the caballeros. All he asked Charles Gould, whom he took for a mysterious and official person, to do for him was to remind the supreme government, el gobierno supreme, of a pension amounting to about a dollar a month to which he believed himself entitled. It had been promised to him, he affirmed, straightening his bent back martially, Many years ago, for my valour in the wars with the wild Indios, when a young man, senor. The waterfall existed no longer. The tree ferns that had luxuriated in its spray had died around the dried-up pool, and the high ravine was only a big trench half filled up with the refuse of excavations and tailings. The torrent, dammed up above, sent its water rushing along the open flumes of scooped tree trunks striding on trestle legs to the turbines working the stamps on the lower plateau, the Mesa Grande of the San Tome mine. Only the memory of the waterfall, with its amazing fernery, like a hanging garden above the rocks of the gorge, was preserved in Mrs Gould's watercolour sketch. She had made it hastily one day from a cleared patch in the bushes, sitting in the shade of a roof of straw erected for her on three rough poles under Don Pepe's direction. Mrs Gould had seen it all from the beginning, the clearing of the wilderness, the making of the road, the cutting of new paths up the cliff face of San Tomé. 
For weeks together she had lived on the spot with her husband, and she was so little in Sulaco during that year that the appearance of the Gould carriage on the Alameda would cause a social excitement. From the heavy family coaches full of stately senoras and black-eyed senoritas rolling solemnly in the shaded alley, white hands were waved towards her with animation in a flutter of greetings. Donna Emilia was down from the mountain. But not for long. Donna Emilia would be gone up to the mountain in a day or two, and her sleek carriage mules would have an easy time of it for another long spell. She had watched the erection of the first frame house put up on the lower mesa for an office and Don Pepe's quarters. She heard with a thrill of thankful emotion the first wagon load of all rattle down the then only chute. She had stood by her husband's side, perfectly silent, and gone cold all over with excitement at the instant when the first battery of only fifteen stamps was put in motion for the first time. On the occasion when the fires under the first set of retorts in their shed had glowed far into the night, she did not retire to rest on the rough cadre set up for her in the as-yet-bare frame-house till she had seen the first spongy lump of silver yielded to the hazards of the world by the dark depths of the Gould concession. She had laid her unmercenary hands with an eagerness that made them tremble upon the first silver ingot turned out still warm from the mould, and by her imaginative estimate of its power she endowed that lump of metal with a justificative conception, as though it were not a mere fact but something far-reaching and impalpable, like the true expression of an emotion or the emergence of a principle. Don Pepe, extremely interested too, looked over her shoulder with a smile that, making longitudinal folds on his face, caused it to resemble a leathern mask with a benignantly diabolic expression. Would not the muchachos of Hernandez like to get hold of this insignificant object that looks, por Dios, very much like a piece of tin, he remarked jocularly. Hernandez, the robber had been an inoffensive small ranchero, kidnapped with circumstances of peculiar atrocity from his home during one of the civil wars and forced to serve in the army. There his conduct as soldier was exemplary, till, watching his chance, he killed his colonel and managed to get clear away. With a band of deserters who chose him for their chief, he had taken refuge beyond the wild and waterless Bolson de Tonoro, the haciendas paid him blackmail in cattle and horses. Extraordinary stories were told of his powers and of his wonderful escapes from capture. He used to ride single-handed into the villages and the little towns on the campo, driving a pack-mule before him, with two revolvers in his belt, go straight to the shop or store, select what he wanted, and ride away unopposed because of the terror his exploits and his audacity inspired poor country people he usually left alone. The upper class were often stopped on the roads and robbed, but any unlucky official that fell into his hands was sure to get a severe flogging. The army officers did not like his name to be mentioned in their presence. His followers, mounted on stolen horses, laughed at the pursuit of the regular cavalry sent to hunt them down, and whom they took pleasure to ambush most scientifically in the broken ground of their own fastness. Expeditions had been fitted out. A price had been put upon his head. 
Even attempts had been made treacherously, of course, to open negotiations with him without in the slightest way affecting the even tenor of his career. At last, in true Costaguana fashion, the fiscal of Tanoro, who was ambitious of the glory of having reduced the famous Hernandez, offered him a sum of money and a safe conduct out of the country for the betrayal of his band. But Hernandez evidently was not of the stuff of which the distinguished military politicians and conspirators of Costaguana are made. This clever but common device, which frequently works like a charm in putting down revolutions, failed with the chief of vulgar salteadores. It promised well for the fiscal at first, but ended very badly for the squadron of lanceros posted by the fiscal's directions in a fold of the ground into which Hernandez had promised to lead his unsuspecting followers. They came, indeed, at the appointed time, but creeping on their hands and knees through the bush, and only let their presence be known by a general discharge of firearms which emptied many saddles. The troopers who escaped came riding very hard into Tonoro. It is said that their commanding officer, who, being better mounted, rode far ahead of the rest, afterwards got into a state of despairing intoxication and beat the ambitious fiscal severely with a flat of his sabre in the presence of his wife and daughters for bringing this disgrace upon the national army. The highest civil official of Tonoro, falling to the ground in a swoon, was further kicked all over the body and roweled with sharp spurs about the neck and face because of the great sensitiveness of his military colleagues. This gossip of the inland campo, so characteristic of the rulers of the country with its story of oppression, inefficiency, fatuous methods, treachery and savage brutality, was perfectly known to Mrs Gould. That it should be accepted with no indignant comment by people of intelligence, refinement and character as something inherent in the nature of things was one of the symptoms of degradation that had the power to exasperate her almost to the verge of despair. Still looking at the ingot of silver, she shook her head at Don Pepe's remark. If it had not been for the lawless territory of your government, Don Pepe, many an outlaw now with Hernandez would be living peaceably and happy by the honest work of his hands. Senora, cried Don Pepe with enthusiasm, it is true. It is as if God had given you the power to look into the very breasts of people. You have seen them working around you, Donna Amelia, meek as lambs, patient like their own burrows, brave like lions. I have led them to the very muzzles of guns, I who stand here before you, Signora. In the time of Paez, who was full of generosity and in courage only approached by the uncle of Don Carlos here, as far as I know. No wonder there are bandits in the campo when there are none but thieves, swindlers and sanguinary macaques to rule us in Santa Marta. However, all the same, a bandit is abandoned, and we shall have a dozen good straight Winchesters to ride with the silver down to Sulaco. Mrs. Gould's ride with the first silver escort to Sulaco was the closing episode of what she called my camp life, before she had settled in her town life permanently, as was proper and even necessary for the wife of the administrator of such an important institution as the San Tome Mine. For the San Tome mine was to become an institution, a rallying point for everything in the province that needed order and stability to live. Security seemed to flow upon this land from the mountain gorge. 
The authorities of Sulaco had learned that the San Tome mine could make it worth their while to leave things and people alone. This was the nearest approach to the rule of common sense and justice Charles Gould felt it possible to secure at first. In fact, the mine, with its organisation, its population growing, fiercely attached to their position of privileged safety, with its armoury, with its Dom Pepe, with its armed body of Serenos, where, it was said, many an outlaw and deserter, and even some members of Hernandez's band had found a place. The mine was a power in the land. As a certain prominent man in Santa Marta had exclaimed with a hollow laugh once when discussing the line of action taken by the Sulaco authorities at a time of political crisis, You call these men government officials? They never... They are officials of the mine, officials of the concession, I tell you. The prominent man, who was then a person in power with a lemon-coloured face and a very short and curly, not to say woolly, head of hair, went so far in his temporary discontent as to shake his yellow fist under the nose of his interlocutor and shriek, Yes, all, silence, all, I tell you, the political jefe, the chief of the police, the chief of the customs, the general, all, all are the officials of that gould. Thereupon an intrepid but low and argumentative murmur would flow on for a space in the ministerial cabinet, and the prominent man's passion would end in a cynical shrug of the shoulders. After all, he seemed to say, what did it matter, as long as the minister himself was not forgotten during his brief day of authority? But all the same, the unofficial agent of the San Tome mine, working for a good cause, had his moments of anxiety, which were reflected in his letters to Don José Avellanos, his maternal uncle. No sanguinary macaque from Santa Marta shall set foot on that part of Costaguana which lies beyond the San Tomé Bridge, Don Pepe used to assure Mrs. Gould, except, of course, as an honoured guest, for a senor administrator is a deep politico. But to Charles Gould in his own room, the old major would remark with a grim and soldierly cheeriness, we are all playing our heads at this game. Don José Avellanos would mutter, Imperio min imperio, Emilia, my soul, with an air of profound self-satisfaction which somehow, in a curious way, seemed to contain a queer admixture of bodily discomfort. But that perhaps could only be visible to the initiated. And for the initiated it was a wonderful place, this drawing-room of the Casa Gould, with its momentary glimpse of the master, El Señor Administrador, older, harder, mysteriously silent, with the lines deepened on his English, ruddy, out-of-doors complexion, flitting on his thin cavalryman's legs across the doorways, either just back from the mountain or with jingling spurs and riding whip under his arm, on the point of starting for the mountain. Then Don Pepe, modestly marshal in his chair, the Llano, who seemed somehow to have found his martial jocularity, his knowledge of the world and his manner perfect for his station, in the midst of savage armed contest with his kind. Avellanos, polished and familiar, the diplomatist with his loquacity covering much caution and wisdom in delicate advice, with his manuscript of a historical work on Costaguana, entitled Fifty Years of Misrule, which... At present he thought it was not prudent, even if it were possible, to give to the world. 
These three, and also Donna Amelia amongst them, gracious, small and fairy-like, before the glittering tea-set, with one common master thought in their heads, with one common feeling of a tense situation, with one ever-present aim to preserve the inviolable character of the mine at every cost. And there was also to be seen Captain Mitchell, a little apart, near one of the long windows, with an air of old-fashioned, neat, old bachelorhood about him, slightly pompous, in a white waistcoat, a little disregarded and unconscious of it, utterly in the dark and imagining himself to be in the thick of things. The good man, having spent a clear thirty years of his life on the high seas before getting what he called a shore billet, was astonished at the importance of transactions, other than related to shipping, which take place on dry land. Almost every event out of the usual daily course marked an epoch for him, or else was history, unless with his pomposity, struggling with the discomforted droop of his rubicund, rather handsome face, set off by snow-white, close hair and short whiskers, he would mutter, Ah, that, that, sir, was a mistake. End of part first. The Silver of the Mine. Chapter 8. Section 1.